Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. The theme of season two is Unprocessed, where each week we deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, John Horan. I'm here with my intern, Morgan Johnson, and we've got a special show for you today on the history of tobacco in Fuquay, Verena. But first, we're going to start by talking about an oral history that Morgan's done. Yeah, so I interviewed Fred Wagstaff, who's a 94-year-old man from Fuquay, and he worked in the tobacco industry for his whole career. He had some experience working in the fields, and uh, for most of his career, he worked in the tobacco markets as a ticket marker. And so he was able to tell us a lot about tobacco from start to finish, particularly what tobacco looked like in Fuquay. I mean, it's fascinating. So you're saying that that this 94-year-old man, he spent his whole life around tobacco? Yeah, and he kind of saw it, you know, within his generation, the tobacco industry died down during that time um, because he was born in 1927. And um, he ended up retiring when the markets closed in Fuquay. So he didn't see it from start to finish, but he saw it kind of in its heyday and saw its decline as well. On the tail end. That's fantastic. And uh, you'll be using this interview throughout this podcast? Yeah, because he was able, like I said, since he was able to cover topics from the start of the tobacco process of planting it and why tobacco was so big in Fuquay, all the way through the sale of the tobacco in the markets, uh, it really, his interview was able to align with kind of the storyline I had for this podcast. All right. Well, then, Morgan, why don't you tell me about tobacco in Fuquay? Yeah. So Fuquay used to be a big tobacco town, but it kind of isn't that anymore. So Fuquay, for those who don't know, is a small town about 15 miles south of Raleigh. If you take 401 South out of downtown Raleigh and drive 50 miles, you'll end up in the heart of Fuquay, Verena, in southern Wake County. And it's one of the fastest growing areas in the state. So on your drive, You'll notice a lot of construction sites along the way, and these sites, they're working on the 540 extension around Wake Tech. They're preparing the land for new housing developments, and you'll see these big piles of red Piedmont clay, but those uh, fields used to be tobacco fields. And why Fuquay? Right, so there was this thing called the Granville Wilt, and so a lot of tobacco farmers moved to Fuquay from the Granville County area. And so what is the Granville Wilt? So I found this report from the North Carolina Agricultural Experiment Station from 1903 to 1904 on NC Digital Collections that explained what the Granville Wilt was. So it's a disease of the tobacco plant that starts in the roots and it first makes its appearance in the plant by drooping leaves at the bottom and then eventually the wilt spreads throughout the whole plant and the whole plant dies. And it's named after Granville County, where it was first discovered in 1881. And according to this report, quote, so great is the injury on those fields that it may be called practically complete destruction of the crop. 
And so the report explains that the disease comes from the soil and it gets progressively worse in a field every year if the, if the tobacco can, is continually planted there again and again. And it's extremely contagious and it spreads through the soil. And it's so contagious that it can spread through the soil on tools or the hoofs of animals. So if you're working in one field using your tools and your mules, and then you take your work over to the next field, you can infect that next field. And studies at that time in the early 1900s showed that the wilt could live in the soil for 8 to 15 years. And at that time, the only way, the only thing you could do about it was to burn the infected fields to implement crop rotation so you're not just continually planting tobacco that isn't going to survive. Or you could save the seeds of seemingly resistant plants um, for whatever reason that they were resistant to the wilt, save those seeds and plant those plants that would hopefully grow to maturity. Fred's family actually moved here from the Granville County area from Creedmoor, and so he was able to tell us a little more about the wilt and the effect that it had on tobacco farmers. Fred gives us a small picture of it, but what did the poor, these poor tobacco farmers do? So that's when they decided to move to Fuquay. Uh, and at that time, in the early 1900s, Fuquay had already garnered a reputation for having good tobacco soil. Uh, by the 1910s, I had found some newspaper articles that showed this. So in October 1913, I found an article from the Mebane Leader from Mebane, North Carolina. And it announced a piece of land for sale in Harnett County near Fuquay that had been found to grow, quote, a very fine quality of bright tobacco. And a few weeks later, I found another article in the Charlotte News about the growth of Fuquay due to tobacco. And the title was, quote, tobacco raising in the surrounding country has caused that former village to grow into a busy, bustling town. And then the next year, in January 1914, the Charlotte News again reported that a world record tobacco sale had occurred in Fuquay. And a Mr. H.M. Talley had sold 5,000 pounds of tobacco for $1,804, which I did some calculations, and that's about $47,000 today. And at the time, according to the papers, that was the highest total, total selling price for an individual sale of tobacco ever in the world. And a Fuquay local in that article was quoted as saying, the world is entitled to the knowledge that Fuquay Springs is one of the best tobacco markets and that the land about this place is the best tobacco soil in the world. And Fred was able to tell us more about how tobacco just dominated Fuquay's economy at that time and how all of these farmers that had moved here from the Granville and Creedmoor area were able to find a lot of success here as tobacco farmers. Most of the people were farmers. And it, it wasn't in many jobs. You either farmed or you worked in the warehouse or you worked in the grocery store or the feed store or something like that because there wasn't any other, wasn't any other jobs. It's a lot of cash money in the farmer's hand. Average farmer, you'd put about 2,000 pounds to the acre of tobacco and you would make $2 a pound. You'd make $4,000 an acre and you plant an acre of corn. And you'd be lucky if you make sixty-five or seventy dollars an acre, or soybeans the same thing. So that's why the back of cotton was not in demand back in the early days, and soybeans and corn was not selling like they are now. 
So that's why the vodka was king because it brings so much more money per acre. It's amazing that that it seems that tobacco dominated from the 1910s all the way through Fred's time. He's he's working in the in the 50, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even beyond that. It's that's fascinating. So we've covered kind of why the early days people moved to Fuquay. They wanted to continue to grow tobacco. They just couldn't do it in Granville County anymore, and they can do it in Fuquay. But what's the process of growing tobacco like? Yeah. So in my research, I think this gives a good um, good picture of what growing tobacco is like. It's referred to as the thirteen month crop uh, because it is just it's you're working on it all year, and it's very hard work. And this was especially true in rural North Carolina, where a lot of that work was done by hand until the 20th century when mechanization and farm machinery became more accessible to people. So the growing season started with preparation of the seed beds. And this was not where the tobacco would eventually grow in big fields all the way to maturity. It was the field in which the seedlings would grow until they were big enough to be transplanted into these bigger fields. And then while the little seedlings were growing, the big field was prepared, which meant plowing the soil, fertilizing it, and creating furrows. And as I mentioned, machinery wasn't really that common in rural North Carolina for a while, and so mules were really essential to that work. So once the seedlings had grown enough, and it was warm enough, and this was usually around April, they would be transplanted into that bigger field. The plants would eventually flower at the top. And when they're fully grown, tobacco plants are pretty tall, and I didn't realize this. I think it's a little bit of an optical illusion if you're driving past a tobacco field. They don't look that tall, Uh, but I found these photographs from around the mid-1900s from the State Archives Farmers Cooperative Exchange photograph collection, and it shows some tobacco plants in Fuquay with grown men standing beside them, and the plants are as tall, if not taller, than these grown men, so that was... A surprising find for me because I didn't realize how tall the plants were when they were mature. And so like I said, when they're fully grown, they'll start to grow flowers at the top. And the f- tobacco farmers would remove these flower buds in a, top, in a process called topping or suckering. And this would allow the plant to send more nutrients into the leaves because the leaves are what the farmers are harvesting, not the flower. Well now, once the tobacco has been planted, pinched, and suckered, then what? So then once the plants are fully grown, the harvesting of the tobacco would usually occur at the end of July into the beginning of August. And the bottom leaves would be harvested first and the farmers would work their way up the plant and harvest the next layer of leaves every few weeks. Um, Fred Wagstaff described this process as priming. So you can't just sell the raw leaves of the tobacco plant. So they cured them to prepare them for sale. And the curing process started with stringing and tying the leaves onto sticks. And this was a job usually done by women. And I found this silent 1960 video from the North Carolina collection at UNC Chapel Hill. And that's available online through NC Digital Collections. And it shows a group of black women expertly performing this very rhythmic task. One woman would stand at a large stack of tobacco leaves and would pass a small kind of measured handful to the women doing the stringing and tying. And then the handful of leaves were strung onto these wooden sticks by looping what looked like a white thread around the top. And now the sticks are 
strung full of tobacco leaves and they're placed in the curing barns and they stayed there for about a week under constant heat from ongoing fire and then this is what made the leaves yellow and dry out and that's what you'll see being sold in the markets and uh, Mr. Wagstaff had a lot to say about um, kind of the skill that goes into curing and how they would use certain technologies thermometers to control this curing process and around here you hear tobacco referred to as bright leaf that is the kind of tobacco traditionally produced in Fuquay that refers to the vivid yellow color of the leaf after it's been cured. And supposedly this type of curing and this type of tobacco was discovered on accident. So the story goes that in 1839, Stephen, who was an enslaved blacksmith in Caswell County, accidentally fell asleep while he was minding the curing barn. And so like I said, tobacco cures under a constant fire. So when he woke up, the fire that was curing the tobacco was dying. So he quickly placed some hot coals from his blacksmithing charcoal pit onto the fire, which produced a quick, really intense heat, and it gave the tobacco the now iconic yellow color that we think of when we think of bright leaf. And while tobacco cultivation had been really common in North Carolina up until this point, the discovery of bright leaf made it a lot more profitable. And I think that the story of Stephen is important to talk about, not only because of the discovery of Brightleaf, but it also reflects how um, the profitability of tobacco cultivation in North Carolina was completely reliant on the labor of enslaved individuals. And even after slavery was abolished, the labor of black people was still exploited through unfair sharecropping and tenant farming contracts. Um, so that's a piece of the story that doesn't need to go ignored. So these farmers weren't growing the, their, this crop. They weren't growing tobacco for their own consumption. They were growing it to sell. It, it's a cash crop. So how did they sell these goods? Yeah, so tobacco was sold at tobacco markets. And Fuquay had several markets that came and went over the course of the 20th century. Uh, some of the names that I came across often were the Tally Brothers Market, the Planters Market, King Roberts, and Everett Clayton Markets. So market season usually started around the end of August, beginning of September, depending on when the crop was ready. Were there other um, limiting factors in when the market opened and closed? Yeah, in our interview, Fred was able to tell us about how the um, school calendar would also kind of relate to when the markets would open because often school children were used for labor in fields, and so the kids can't work in the fields and go to school at the same time. How would all of this tobacco, how would it get brought into the markets? So the farmers would deliver the, the cured tobacco to the market and I actually found an image of kind of this initial delivery of the tobacco after it's been graded and it's ready for sale. I found a photo of that from the Hewland Dean collection from the State Archives. It's a 1957 photo and I, it's available on Flickr and it shows at the Everett Clayton warehouse in Fuquay this big pile of tobacco between it's seller, the farmer, he's wearing a pair of overalls, and then the warehouse worker is handing him a piece of paperwork 
regarding this huge pile of tobacco standing beside him. And um, Fred was able to tell us a lot more about how the markets actually functioned, what the sales actually looked like, and what his job was like as a ticket marker, because that is what he did for his whole career for decades. Okay, so then you have this ticket marker, you have all this paperwork, you have, you know, these farmers bring it in, process it, and then a sample, and everybody kind of goes through and there's an auctioneering process. What is involved with that auctioneering process? So the people who, you have the buyers who are buying the tobacco. And as Fred explains in his interview, these buyers were representing companies that manufactured these different tobacco products like cigarettes or chewing tobacco. And they would bid on these bundles of cured tobacco. And that bidding process was kind of controlled and operated by the auctioneers. Fred also explained more about these buyers from these different companies and how they would want specific grades of tobacco. And he also told us this auctioning process, it's, it's pretty loud and uh, it's very quick. That was what he talked about a little bit with his job as a ticket marker was that he had to be on the ball. It was very fast paced. And he was also able to tell us a little bit about what the um, atmosphere of the market was like when he was working there. It seems like the Fuquay markets were kind of bustling. Was it sort of a middle run kind of market or, or, or did people bring it to Fuquay thinking that they could make a good profit? It seemed like Fuquay was kind of the place to be if you wanted to sell your tobacco. And this surprised me because it's, it's not something that's uh, kind of touted in Fuquay very often is uh, how good the markets were doing. So in my research, I found that tobacco consistently sold for high prices in Fuquay. So as I talked about earlier, Fuquay had record-setting sales in the early 1900s and the 1910s, and they continued to garner this reputation for fetching high prices into the 20th century. I found this article from the Chatham Record in 1928 that reported that Fuquay's markets were the highest paying in the Bright Belt that year with an average price of about $21 per hundred pounds, which again, I did some calculations and it's about $320 today. And in 1936, the next decade, the Zebulon record reported that, quote, the Fuquay market has maintained its reputation for paying the highest price in the belt. And this success seemed to continue into the 1950s. And I found some newspaper ads in 1951 for the town markets that were advertising the markets as leading the state in the top price average. Something else that surprised me that Fred talked about with us in his interview was how Fuquay markets also sold a really large quantity of tobacco. Um, Fuquay would sell tens of millions of pounds more, it seemed, in its prime than other markets in North Carolina or in the South generally. And because the markets were so successful, it seemed. It really was dominant in Fuquay's economy. Fuquay was a tobacco town, and it was completely reliant on these tobacco markets, and he uh, expressed that in his interview as well. How long does that sort of dominance last? Well, it seemed like the markets were open until the 90s, early 2000s, and that's when Fred Wagstaff retired from his job as a ticket marker. And uh, he explained in his interview how the 
tobacco selling system around that time changed from the auction system to a contract system where the farmers would sell their tobacco directly to these companies rather than auctioning it off at the markets. And he also explained how after the markets died out, all of these people that were working in the markets had to find new jobs. For him, he was already at retirement age anyway, so that kind of the timing worked out. But um, you had other people that were maybe in the middle of their careers and they had to find somewhere else to go. And today, the old warehouse building, old market buildings are still around and some of them have been repurposed. What has replaced these the, the markets? I mean, you're, you're saying that people had to find new jobs and that the buildings were repurposed. What were the new jobs and what went into those old buildings? Yeah, so Fred talked about in his interview how a lot of people ended up finding jobs in Raleigh, kind of more industrial jobs, office jobs, because Fuquay undoubtedly part of Fuquay's growth was not entirely due to tobacco. Um, it could also be attributed to its proximity to Raleigh. And um, I think nowadays that's kind of Fuquay's identity is a suburb of Raleigh. And so um, that's where a lot of people went was Raleigh RTP kind of going into a different type of field. Uh, nowadays, some of the old market buildings have been torn down. Uh, and Fred talked about that in his interview. Some of them are um, just repurposed as like kind of more general warehouses. And it's not something, that's something I kind of noticed being from Fuquay myself. These buildings aren't really marked for their historical significance at all. You might not even know you're driving past this old, big old building and that that used to be a tobacco market. They're not, not really advertised or marked in any way for that so no old sign on the painted on the side of the of the market with some chipping paint about you know buy this tobacco or some witty uh catchphrase from some marketing no that's not something you really see Mm -mm. that's fascinating so it seems that the markets and tobacco have left fuquay and fuquay kind of looks somewhere else now for for its economy but how does tobacco influence fuquay's culture today Today, you'll still see some tobacco fields around, but I think they're not um, not these big swaths of land like they used to be of tobacco. A lot of them have been replaced with housing developments and new schools, uh, and I can attest to that. Even in my lifetime, I can remember, oh, that housing development used to be farmland. So it's still, tobacco's still around, especially kind of in the more rural areas outside of town, you'll still see tobacco fields, but... Um, not it's definitely not as prominent as it used to be and like I said I think Fuquay is kind of more of a its identity is more just oh we're a small town near Raleigh that's nice to live in for your family to raise your family in but uh, not necessarily a, a farming town anymore. What was surprising about doing the research? I think for me learning about The markets was the most surprising thing because growing up in North Carolina, you hear a lot about uh, the harvesting step and you can go to any number of historic sites, uh, agricultural historic sites, Duke Homestead, that kind of thing, and learn all you want about um, how tobacco is grown, how they cure it, but you don't hear a lot about the markets. You'll also hear a lot about um, kind of the post production phase and how tobacco was important to culture and tobacco products were 
uh, so prevalent in uh, the South and in North Carolina. I feel like that idea has kind of even permeated popular culture because you'll see shows like Mad Men where they're talking about uh, working with the Reynolds Tobacco Company or something like that. But you don't hear about that market step a lot. And so that was something that was fascinating to me to learn about because I didn't know anything about it. Despite growing up in Fuquay and being a North Carolina native, um, I thought I knew a lot about tobacco, but there's a lot I I don't know. Having Fred talk to us about the markets was really eye-opening for me and just how vital that step of the process was to the economy yeah and then what what about other takeaways that you you had from doing the interview i think and this is something you can really i think highlight with oral history is these everyday stories i think sometimes there's a reluctance in these kind of newly booming rural areas like fuquay i think there's a reluctance sometimes for us to embrace the agricultural roots that we have, uh, because I think, and you know, I have a history degree coming from a history background. I think sometimes agriculture and these normal stories are seen as boring sometimes because it doesn't have anything to do with like national or international politics or uh, warfare or these big social movements. Although you can tie agriculture to those things, but that's a different podcast episode. but I think like it or not I don't think people like to talk about this but like it or not small subsistence farmers growing tobacco were the vast majority of North Carolinians for a really really long time and it might not be exciting to some people but like that's the reality of it and those stories aren't really documented as much and so I think that was kind of a meaningful aspect of it to me to get to do this interview and capture some of that side of things in rural North Carolina. Yeah, I think that your, your point is well taken. Uh, oral history in general and, and, and this type of oral history, we're talking to farmers and every day, it sounds mundane, but as you've proved and what you've kind of brought to this podcast is that the mundane is actually pretty special. I think that the work you've done Uh, for the podcast and for the interview really highlight that. So thank you very much. And I just wanted to say that the full oral history interview with Fred Wagstaff is available through the state archives in which he discusses more about his personal life and upbringing in rural Southern Wake County. The Carolina Bright film that I referred to is available through NC Digital Collections through the state archives. The Hewlin Dean and Farmers Cooperative Exchange Collection photos are available on Flickr, again, through the state archives. Uh, My newspaper research was done through North Carolina Newspapers Database through Digital NC, and all of the tobacco reports I referred to are available through North Carolina Digital Collections. This season of Connecting the Docs is brought to you by staff members of the State Archives of North Carolina. Special thanks this week to our summer intern, Morgan Johnson, to our producer, Raina McRae, and the voice you hear the beginning and end of each episode Judy Allen Dotson. And I'm your host, John Horan. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs, Unprocessed. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, 
or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. For more news and information, please visit our website, archives.ncdcr.gov.